0: Well, thank you for joining me. I'm Brian Sussman, The Brian Sussman Show. You are in for a treat. Dr. Neil Frank is a 92-year-old meteorologist. He ran the National Hurricane Center for 13 years. He was the director of the National Hurricane Center, a meteorologist, meteorologist, a wonderful scientist, well-respected by all of his colleagues, and I might add, A man who thoroughly believes, firmly believes, that the global warming hypothesis, the global warming theory is indeed a hoax. You will hear why in this interview. Some of you have seen part one, others have seen part one, and two, this is the full interview. And as one viewer happened to say after viewing part one, this man is a national treasure. And indeed, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, it's rather interesting because I was so taken by Dr. Neil Frank and having the opportunity to interview him that I sent a friend named Jesse to Houston, Texas to Dr. Neil's home so that as we conducted this interview on Zoom, he would look great, he would sound great because I wanted this to be a keeper. And I think we have a keeper. Enjoy the interview. I'll be back afterward with a few further comments. Here we go we're rolling. Okay. Well, Dr. Neil Frank, it is great to see you. And my first question right out the gate is, how are you? I'm just doing great. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) Uh, Kind of keeping up with family. Uh, Had an interesting event take place in our life yesterday. The 21st great grandchild, a little boy was born yesterday. Wow. So,
0: Twenty-one great grandchildren. <laughs> My goodness! Now I want you to inform this audience of your age.
1: Ninety-two, uh, headed four seventy-five.
0: <laughs> I, I listen. I have to tell you, you 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 would look great. You're, you're you look as at ninety-two, but you could easily pass for a guy ten, maybe even fifteen years younger. I'm serious. Yeah. I'm sure everybody watching yeah, this yeah. is thinking the same thing. Right.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And I'm going to tell you, I believe that it's partly because of God's mercy. Uh, We pray over our physical bodies, my wife and I, every day. And I believe that God has answered prayer. Wow. And how long have you been married, doctor? 70. Let's see. We got married in 1952. Uh, So we're 73. (laughs) But I dated her for five years before we got married. Wow. Wow. So wow. we're over 75 years.
0: You are a blessed man. That is an understatement.
1: Absolutely. And, it, you know, God has been good to us. That's all I can say.
0: I want to talk to you first off about your story, your personal story, in that you had no intention early on of becoming a meteorologist, let alone a Ph.D. meteorologist. Your intention early on was to coach basketball, correct? Correct.
1: That's right. I played basketball and tennis in college. And so it was my desire that I would become a basketball coach. And so I ran into the chemistry professor on the campus who was a big basketball fan. And he said, Neil, you need to come over and major in science. And I said, no, 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 I want to be a a basketball coach. He said, yeah, but you can become a science teacher, basketball coach, and that'll give you a competitive edge over all your friends that are phys ed majors. (laughs) And so that's the way I got into uh, the science. And then when I was a senior in college, I found out the Air Force was looking for science majors to go into their meteorology program. My interest in science really accelerated when I got into the Air Force. The Air Force program was they wanted science majors to go into their meteorology program. So I went into, I had signed up in the Air Force, and they sent me my first year to St. Louis University. So I took all these meteorology courses. That's when I began to get
0: excited about science. And I'm guessing at some point in time, you received your master's and then your Ph.D., where did you do those further studies? Well, those
1: further studies were after I got out of the Air Force, and then I went to the graduate program at Florida State University. So my master's and the PhD in
0: meteorology came from Florida State University. That's the wonderful thing about Air Force meteorology. It's so practical, Dr. Deal.
1: Every pilot that takes off in an Air Force or in the Navy or in a military program has to have a weather briefing. And I used to have to sign off. Okay, here's the weather. Now you're, you're free to go.
0: You've seen the entire evolution of modern meteorology. Talk to us about how you would forecast back in the day as compared to the wonderful resources and tools you have for forecasting today.
1: Oh, there's no question about the big evolution. Of course, from the Air Force, while I was in the Air Force, they sent me to Okinawa, a little island in the Western Pacific, south of Japan, that's famous for its typhoons. So I got introduced into hurricanes. They call them typhoons in the Western Pacific. Um, I got in, introduced into the hurricane activity while I was there on, on Okinawa. And... Uh, It was it was there that my interest really peaked in tropical meteorology, and to come back then, and to go into uh, the graduate program
0: there at Florida State University. Were you able to personally experience a typhoon, a hurricane?
1: Absolutely, three. Wow. (laughs) Okay. was fairly weak, and you know, we got by all right. Then the second one came, it was stronger. And the third one came and blew down the weather instruments when they were recording 160 mile an hour. And so, in the first event, I remember uh, driving home, you know, uh, I lived off base. And so I went out and got my car, turned on the windshield wipers, and the wind just took the windshield wipers <laughs> right off. <laughs> And then as I was driving home, buildings came across the street in front of me, and I'm thinking,
0: whoa, I've never seen anything like this. My goodness. Absolutely. So so that definitely piqued your interest. So now you end up going to the National Hurricane Center. Explain to us that part of your career. How did you get there?
1: Well, you know, you ask, first of all, what what tools we had to work with. And I need to go back because today we have these – numerical models that predict out to 10 days and, and all, it's just incredible, the tools that we have to work with today. But when I was there on Okinawa, uh, we had a few reconnaissance planes that would fly into the storm, but basically we had
0: to rely on, on the ship reports. So Dr. Frank, again, you've seen this major transformation in technology. My My guess is... The meteorologists from back in your day, when you were first getting into the business, uh, with such limited data available to forecast the biggest storms on Earth, uh, you have a wealth of knowledge and wisdom that perhaps the younger meteorologists don't have today because they rely so much on the models. You were relying on a lot of other things. Talk to us about that. We were, in, we were in touch
1: with weather. We drew our maps. We looked at the pressure changes. They don't do that today. Uh, all they do is say, okay, what does the American model show? And if that model breaks down, they don't know where to go. They don't know where to I remember when I first started uh, doing the broadcasting at the TV station, um, that, you know, my background, okay, I I looked at the weather maps, and I drew maps even at that time, and this has got to be in, in the 80s, late 80s. I would draw the weather maps up, and I would make my forecast. Then I'd go look and see what the numerical models were forecasting, and I remember the guy that was working the, the, on graphics, there was a couple of times when the uh, computer failed, and they didn't they didn't have the forecast. And he said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we'll probably make a forecast. And so, you know, then we relied back on my background where we were very sensitive to the weather information. And, and boy, what a difference. What a difference oh, yeah. that makes.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, th- My satellite meteorology teacher at San Jose State University was named Sid Cerebrini. And St- Sid, he was he was a military forecaster in World War II. and he kept noticing that planes that were flying westward into yeah. what we now know as the jet stream, they were reporting these these headwinds that were sometimes you know a couple hundred miles an hour. That's
1: and right.
0: He, he thought that that's that's impossible. What could be what could be blowing? at that particular speed, at that particular altitude, in that particular direction. Well, it was before they had discovered the jet stream. And he said they were losing so many pilots and planes who were heading into that jet stream. And that's where they made their discovery. So it's interesting to watch this evolution of of meteorology and forecasting meteorology. And, And sometimes the lessons were learned with great peril to others, like with these pilots. Sure the thing that fascinates me here is initially you were doing this forecasting for again the biggest storms on earth through mere observations coming from ships coming from planes you didn't have the advantage of a satellite so this really tested your meteorological metal so to speak there's no question
1: about it and in those years we became very sensitive to our weather patterns, and we went paid very close attention to uh, the the reports, particularly from the ships. And boy, we analyzed the data uh, from the surface to the top of the atmosphere, and we then we made our own predictions of what we thought was going to happen in terms and and it was it was a real challenge, but. Uh, the best thing I can tell you about it is we we became alive to what weather was doing. In contrast, today, the meteorologists depend on a numerical model. So now let's go to the hurricanes. Hurricane-type storms form throughout the world. In the Pacific, we call them typhoons, and in uh, the Indian Ocean and down in Australia, they call them cyclones. Well, if you take a look at the number of hurricane type storms that form worldwide, there's about 47. Uh, we have pretty good records with satellites that go back 40 years. So what has been the trend in that? It? Well, it's been down. And a matter of fact, in 2021, there was only 37. And in 2022, there were only uh, 40. So if anything, there has been a downward trend. Now in the Atlantic, uh, you run into this problem that we had 30 storms in 2020. Oh, that must be global warming, it's causing all of that. Well, I went back and did an analysis of that whole thing. And one of the reasons we're seeing more storms is because we have satellite pictures. Now, before we had satellites in the central and the Eastern Atlantic, we were naming one storm every two years. The only way we knew a storm was over there if a ship would accidentally bump into one of them, okay? Mm. Now with satellites, we know that there are three to five storms a year form over there. And so you look back in uh, 2020, and there was like 10 storms that formed in areas where we wouldn't have been naming those before we had satellites. So now the big increase in 2020 is because of a change in philosophy of what do we name in terms of storm and the satellite pictures. So the only legitimate trend in hurricane activity in the Atlantic would look at major hurricanes that have made landfall in the lower 48. And I would, and now when I say major hurricanes, I mean ones with winds in excess of 110 miles an hour, or in the Atlantic, we call these on the Saffir-Simpson scale, a category three or a category four or five storm. Now, I would concede to you that we might had tropical storms or a category one, a weak storm uh, in the 1800s that didn't get in the record book, but I can assure you that if you had a major hurricane, even in the 1800s, it's in the record book. So if you take a look at the trend of the major hurricanes that have made landfall in the lower 48, you can see that there is a downward trend. As a matter of fact, in the 40s, Florida got hit by 11 hurricanes and seven of these were major. And the most active hurricane year on record where we have all all uh, categories of hurricanes, was in 1886 when we had seven hurricanes make landfall in the Gulf of Mexico, three in Florida, and also four in Texas. Two of those were major, and one of those destroyed a place called Indianola, a thriving seasport in the middle part of the 1800s, and it was totally
0: destroyed by one of those hurricanes in 1886. But again, I want to go back to... This whole idea that we're seeing more hurricanes than ever, because that's what the climate activists will contend. Right. Uh, we know from history that there have been some monster, deadly storms in many, many years gone by. Uh, so talk to us about that contrast, the history compared to the present, um, the present dialogue that we get from the climate activists.
1: Well, the climate activists today are taking every major storm, whether it be winter or whether it be summer or whether it be hurricane, and they said, uh-huh, that's an example of global warming. No, no, no. We've had major hurricanes throughout the history of uh, our records. In 1893, two major hurricanes made landfall in the United States, and both of them killed over 2,000 people. One of them was on uh, Hilton Head Island in South Carolina, and the other was uh, on the coastal areas of Louisiana. The strongest storm that has ever hit the United States as far as winds and as far as pressure occurred in 1935. A storm moved across the Bahama Islands and when it left the westernmost Bahama Islands, it was a tropical storm and 36 hours later, it was the strongest storm that has ever hit the United States. So we have a long history of major, major hurricanes. Um, the, the trend today is say, ah, This storm has never occurred
0: in the past. No, that's not true. Well, isn't it interesting? Uh, Karl Marx said history means nothing. And I think the climate activist of today wants to erase the historical record because it doesn't fit their agenda. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, there's no question about that. And there's a lot of the younger folks that are in meteorology today that don't know, uh, if they look in the past records, they don't know that there was problems in the observations in those years.
0: Could you explain to our audience why hurricanes are a necessary function of the global environment?
1: Yeah, that's very easy to do. Uh, in order to live on this planet we have to mix the cold air in the northern latitudes with the warm air in the southern latitudes. Uh, if, it, if we don't have that mixing process, then we'd be in real trouble. Well, in the wintertime, winter storms do that mixing very well. I like to refer to winter storms as giant egg beaters, and they bring the cold air south into the tropics and the warm air north into the higher latitudes, and then everything works out very well. But in the summertime, the boundary between the colder polar air and the tropical air retreats way back up into northern Canada, and you get a big buildup of heat in the tropics. You've got to get rid of that heat. And Mother Nature has a very effective way of doing it, and it's called the hurricane. So when a hurricane forms, it represents the tropical atmosphere boiling, and when that that bubble of hot air moves into higher latitudes, we remove heat out of the tropics. So hurricanes were not designed to create problems for mankind. Uh, I'm not sure it was ever intended that we would live on Galveston Island or we would (laughs) live on Long Island or whatever, on the coastal areas of, of, of Georgia but since we have decided to live, live in those areas we've created a hurricane problem but i submit a lot of the hurricane problem is man made
0: when did you first hear about human caused anthropogenic global warming when did that when did that topic first come to your attention
1: well, that came to my attention in the 80s. And there was, a, there was a real good friend of mine, Dr. Bill Gray. He was the meteorologist that started making predictions of the hurricane numbers in the, in the, in the coming hurricane season. So he became quite famous for that. And he called me up. It, it was a mess. incidentally. Every summer he would come down and spend time at the hurricane center. And so he called me up and he said, look, this global warming is a mess. Uh, you, you uh, I, I don't believe that it's, uh, it's happening. And, you know, I'm, an, I'm a meteorologist that specialized in tropical meteorology. I had uh, knowledge of these people, for example, man. I had knowledge that the people were making uh, alarmist statements about global warming, and I just trusted them. Uh, I figured that was their specialty, okay. I, w- I would believe it. But Bill insisted. And he sent me a book, Patrick Michael's book, Uh, Sound and Fury. I think it's one of the first books that challenged global warming. And he said, you need to read this before I come down this summer. And so I did. And that's when I began to uh, challenge global warming. And so I've been watching the data very, very carefully for the last 25 or 30 years.
0: And the data just doesn't support the alarmist statements that are being made. Dr. Gray was a real character. I used to have him on my radio program in San Francisco on a regular basis, and I met him at a couple of conferences, and he was was a real live wire, that's for sure. But but all that said, Dr. Frank, he was extremely passionate about this global warming slash climate change debate.
1: No question about it, and it turns out that he was right, right on in spite of the fact that the meteorological community in general accepted the uh, alarmist statements.
0: Well, okay. So let's take that to the present. I know from a past conversation with you, you were telling me that you're you're of a mindset that there are a lot of people working in atmospheric science today. They're working at universities, they're working at think tanks, et cetera, who They're just staying out of the fray. They've never researched it. They just want to do what they do on a daily basis and keep that paycheck coming in. They don't want to be bothered. There is that segment within the scientific community, correct? Oh, there's no question about that. And the people that I worked with at the Hurricane Center,
1: not one of them had gone back and done an analysis, a decent analysis. Even reading some of the books that have been written, and there's been all kinds of of incredible books that have been written by skeptics. I have in my personal file your book, as well as some 30 other others that all were written by uh, a, a, a very talented uh, meteorologist and questioning the whole uh, the whole alarmist uh, philosophy. And these people are just not spending time doing that. And so they just are like, well, I was in the 80s. I accepted that these other experts, they knew what they were doing. I just accepted it. But I'll tell you another uh, important factor is that if you then begin to voice your opinion
0: and question alarmists, you jeopardize your career. Well, okay, that's where I wanted to go with this questioning because a lot of scientists realize the funding is going to end if they become a contrarian to the global warming narrative, the climate change narrative, correct? Absolutely
1: no question about that. Dr. Bill Gray was a classic example of that. He, uh, He was being supported by NOAA with a lot of contracts for the work that he was doing in tropical meteorology, but the first time that he mentioned and challenged the alarmist position, all of his,
0: all of his funding dried up. Isn't that amazing? And here he was, you know, he's at Colorado State University. He is the guy that everyone would turn to, to get the hurricane forecast each year. So he was providing a public service to humanity and they cut him off. And they cut him
1: off, no question about it. Now, what happened is then they transferred that responsibility to some meteorologists within NOAA where they could control what, what they said about global warming. So I don't challenge their predictions of the hurricane activity in the coming season. But,
0: boy, they, uh, they are toeing the line about uh, the alarmant. Did you experience that as well? Because you, after 13 years as director of the National Hurricane Center, then you went into television, working for the CBS station in Houston. I remember that very well. And you would be on the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather, whenever there was a big hurricane. Um, But when you, or did you, during your time on the air, did you ever speak out on global warming or climate change? And if so, what was the response you received from your colleagues?
1: well within the environment of the tv station itself they all knew that i was uh, that i challenged i was a, a challenged the global warming concept as a matter of fact anytime we had a story on global warming i would go back and check it and i would if i saw they were doing something uh, that uh, wasn't really true then i challenged that and I remember one of the meteorologists there, or one of the forecast, foreca- no, 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 one of the reporters came to me one time and said, Neil, um, I just don't agree with what uh, what you're telling me. And I said, well, what is your background in meteorology? He said, well, I took a basic course in meteorology when I got my degree in broadcasting. And I said, so you're challenging somebody that has a PhD <laughs> in meteorology with your one course. And so the the attitude within the environment of the TV station was they supported the activist position, but I was able to challenge them. And nobody, nobody, while I was on the air, ever challenged me and said, you cannot go on the air
0: and uh, challenge global warming. So this brings up a great point because I know you're associated with the CO2 coalition. And I look at that roster of scientists who are associated with that coalition, and I'm thinking these are some big-time academicians, uh, PhDs with lots and lots of years of research under their belt. They're credible people. So when I look at that roster, which includes, by the way, Dr. John Clouser, a Nobel They're Prize trying. recipient, I- I'm wondering what the disconnect is. How could people discredit all of that power? That's My question to you,
1: would you take a look at the age of the people that are very active in the carbon dioxide coalition? They're not younger and they don't work for the government. Okay, most of them are retired or they live or their occupation is in some adventure that wouldn't be affected by global warming. And yet the tremendous wisdom, as you point out, the tremendous wisdom that is that in that group of
0: people is amazing. But you make a, an excellent point, Dr. Neil. The people that are most outspoken about this are, are older. They're not dependent upon government funding of any kind, so they can freely speak out, whereas the others are kind of harnessed. They're her lips are sealed because That's right. they got to put bread on the table.
1: Dr. Joanne Simpson. I don't know whether that name rings oh, a Oh, yes, no. With her. I, I I know of her very well. Yes. Okay. Well, her boy, you know, I worked for Dr. Simpson. Right. Um, that was I was his deputy for
0: three years before he retired. Yeah, so left. she was well, she was married a, to another meteorologist.
1: Yeah, but she would then have married my boss. Yes. And so she took the name dr simpson yes. well they went to washington dc and she was one of the premier uh, meteorologists in, in nasa at that time and she was very careful about any statements about global warming but when she retired she once she said i'm now free to make the statement
0: that i want to make and i want you to know i'm a skeptic talk to us about co2 it's it's essential for life right why do you think it's so vilified doctor yeah
1: now let's talk about carbon dioxide carbon dioxide is a very minor 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 gas <laughs> okay as you have pointed out in your book it's 0.04% of the atmosphere now i've seen a number of references that in it, that show just what that really means. I like to use the one about the football stadium in Dallas. It holds 100,000 people. If you assign a molecule of air to every one of those seats, you would end up with 70,000 plus nitrogen seats. You would end up with 20,000 plus oxygen seats, maybe 2000 water vapor seats. There would only be 40, 40 seats. That's 0.04 percent of the atmosphere, or 400 parts per million, and I don't think 40 seats are going to control the atmosphere in a football stadium uh, where there's a football game. Nor do I believe that 0.04 percent of the atmosphere is going to control the global temperature. It is a very minor, minor gas.
0: So it's so, almost as if Dr. Neal, it's almost as if they they have the tail wagging the dog. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even if we double that,
1: it, we, right now, we're about 400 parts per million. If you double it, it only goes to 80 seats. <laughs> <You know>? Again, <laughs> 80 seats is a very small number of seats in a 100,000-seat stadium. Uh, but the other thing that is very, very important is it is a miracle gas, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Without carbon dioxide, all plants die. And that means all humans die. Uh, the carbon dioxide levels for the last 10,000 years have averaged in the range of two, in the 200s, maybe averaged 250 or two, something like that. Well, it's raised up now to 400. Um, I don't know whether people know this or not, but if the carbon dioxide levels ever drop below 180, all plants die. And we were very close to that at times during the last 10,000 years. So it's interesting now that it's up to four hundred, and what we're finding is that there is a significant greening of the planet, that we think is because of carbon dioxide. Um, It's interesting to uh, look at nurseries; people who can control their carbon dioxide in nurseries bump the levels up to twelve hundred to fifteen hundred, three to four times (laughs) what. What is today? They know the secret. Uh, so the the big question, and I've often asked this of the climate alarmists: What is the optimum level of carbon dioxide?
0: Right. They don't know. Let's also talk about the warming of the planet. If if indeed, well, whenever we experience warming, uh, and and long term warming at that, and I'm thinking of the medieval warm period. Uh, You noticed some wonderful benefits to society at large. So if we had warmer weather, you would think that the temperate zones would expand. We'd be able to grow more food. This could actually be beneficial for humankind. Your thoughts on that? Well, we've been warming for the last 175
1: years, and I am delighted. <laughs> I don't want to go back and experience some of the winters that Washington had when he was in Valley Forge.
0: The little or ice in age, Europe where,
1: yeah, hundreds of thousands of people died because of crop failures, and it the the weather was so cold at that time that the Thames River froze solid enough that they could have winter carnivals on top of the ice. I don't want to do that. Okay. <laughs> But it's interesting to take a look at a sequence of the Earth's temperatures. The Earth's temperature tend to occur in cycles. The longest cycle that we're aware of is the Ice Age. They last 100,000 years, separated by a 10,000-year warm period. We're living in one of those warm periods. We've been in this warm period about 11,000 years, as a matter of fact. And it's interesting to note that the temperature in the warm period that we are experiencing is the coldest of the last three warm periods in the last four ice ages, not the hottest. We're living in the warmest and in the coldest. And furthermore, if you take a look at the temperature over the last 10,000 years, you'll find that there is a thousand year cycle in the temperature. Every thousand years, it's warm. That's where we are. We're at one of those thousand year peaks. A thousand years ago, as you indicated in your book, we had the medieval warm period when they farmed in Greenland for some 400 years. And prior to that, we had the Roman period 2,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago was when Europe uh, or Egypt and many of the countries in the Middle East thrived. When we went to the cold periods, like the Little Ice Age, mm-hmm. that's when
0: the, the size did period. So if let, let's talk about this in terms of the historical record, this has to probably irritate you to no end. How the record has been so obliterated? Medieval Warm Period, Little Ice Age. Right. Now we're right. in this period of time where there's an absolute spike in temperature. This. As a scientist, as a guy who's dedicated his life to yeah. science and specifically meteorology, this really has to irritate you. Well, there's no question
1: about it. And when you look back a thousand years ago, the temperature was warmer than we are experiencing right now. So we could go up a little bit more and still not be as warm as it was a thousand years ago. And they thrived a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm personally, I do a lot better. You know, I'm 92 years old. I can go back to some pretty cold winters in my early period in Kansas. I don't want to go back to those same winters again. I have seen and I have progressed, and I think that I've done much better in the warm than during those cold periods.
0: One of the things I talk about in Climate Cult, as you know, and by the way, I would just maybe like to stop and thank you so much for your wonderful endorsement. Uh, I had literally, I was literally praying about ways I could somehow get this book to you. I didn't know you at the time. I was literally praying, how can I get this book to Dr. Neil Frank? I think he would like it. Maybe he would give me an endorsement. Well, things worked out and I was able to get you uh, the manuscript. You were able to read it. Thank you for your wonderful endorsement, Dr. Neil. I really appreciate that. Well, one of the things that
1: I really appreciate about you is that you go back to Marxist philosophy and this whole concept of environmentalism goes back a long ways. But see, I'm convinced I've been watching for 25 or 30 years. What is causing the support for this global warming? Um, Maybe it's money. Yeah, that's true. Al Gore did very well. I think he, uh, I saw one place where he, after he left the presidency or the vice presidency, he invested in 14 green energy companies subsidized by the federal government for $2.5 billion. Well, he's done very well. He's a multimillionaire, maybe a billionaire today, or maybe it's just power, political power. And I accept that, but that doesn't justify the worldwide commitment to this global warming uh, alarmist. And so you bought in this whole question of Marxists. And I believe that that is the primary reason for this. Um, This nation is in trouble. Um, There has been a move to turn this over to a Marxist-type society for over 100 years. I believe that that's what is driving global warming. So what is the ultimate purpose in global warming? It is to destroy our economy. And as we go through a period of tremendous economic upheaval, the unrest will permit this Marxist philosophy to come forth and to dominate and to overcome our beautiful capitalistic Judaic Christian society. And you were the first of the meteorologists that I've seen that has stressed that point, and I
0: compliment you for that well there are some wonderful brilliant meteorologists atmospheric scientists who have written some great books on the topic but my wheelhouse has always been the pursuit of life liberty and happiness and so i thought that's that's got to be that's got to be my wheelhouse i can be different from everybody else if i focus on that and use the meteorology whenever necessary so i appreciate your your compliments on that it's very important to me these these discussions are vital, and I'm hoping, I'm believing we're changing some minds along the way, Dr. Neal.
1: Well, until we get to the real purpose of that, we'll continue to
0: see this green energy. See, this is why I enjoy listening to, well, I'm getting up there in years, but I enjoy listening to guys who are old enough to be my father. That would be you. And in your particular case, you've got 92 years of life experience that is equated to wisdom, and we need to tap into that. That's what people need to hear what you're saying. It's incredibly valuable yeah. to hear your side of the story, which you know includes your background in meteorology.
1: Well, part of the problem we have today is that young people will not pay attention to the older folks that have that sure. wisdom. Uh, our colleges have are have become training centers mm-hmm. for a Marxist type of philosophy, and that has that has m- migrated
0: all the way down into the lower grades. Right, and in the process, just hammer life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Destroy those things. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, this this nicely takes us to another part of this interview that I think is very important. I find your Christian story to be very intriguing, because here you were, a scientist, someone devoted to your profession, and you at one point in time thought, I'm going to scientifically prove there is no God. Do I have that part of the story correct? Absolutely.
1: (laughs) No, I was born and raised in Northwest Kansas in a very strong Christian environment, and in that sense, I inherited a, a stringent set of moral values, and I lived by both those moral values all my life. And my wife was born in that same kind of a community, so uh, I had I went to church all the time, and so I was born and raised within the church. But I didn't I had never really really made a commitment to it. And I came out of church one day and ran into a friend of mine and he said, What are you doing in church? And I said, Well, we've got small children. We think it's important that they be here and and be trained in in you know, under the right moral standards. <laughs> and he said, if there's something here for them, don't don't you think there might be something here for you? Now, that made me angry because we were active in the church as a young married couple. We were, I was the president of the Sunday school class, and my wife was teaching in the Sunday school program. <clears throat> but I went home, and it took me a couple of days before the anger subsided, and I began to reflect back on that question. I said, well, what am I doing there? Hmm. I, uh, I just didn't know. And I said, "You know, I need to find out. I need to determine uh, what this godly Christian thing is. Why am I wasting my time here if if there is no God? So I decided that I would collect some data, and I would at least read. I made a commitment to myself to to read. Something in terms of the Christian faith Bible, for example, at least an hour a day for the next six months. And at the end of that time, I was going to list the things that were for God and against God. And if I'm honest with you tonight, I set out to prove that there was no God. Mm. And that didn't work out at all. God didn't cooperate. (laughs) (laughs) There are two things that I struggled with. The first one was the question of sin. I had the preconceived notion that sin was a specific act. If you weren't involved in the act, then what made you a sinner? And let me tell you, I wasn't involved in the act. Do you know that I had, in my entire lifetime, I never heard my grandparents or my parents ever swear? My grandmother was about five feet tall, and she threatened me one time, if I ever hear you swear, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. No. I saw my granddad in in a few situations with wild horses, and I think an appropriate verbal outbreak could have been in order. But he never yielded that. Uh, nobody in my family ever drank or ever smoked. I don't say that with any sense of pride, nor do I say it with any sense of shame. That's just where I was born, so I had the preconceived notion that sin was a specific act, and if anyone, I went down to the to the local. Uh, to the local pool hall and had a beer Oh yeah, that's an act. (laughs) Okay. But I wasn't involved in that. So my struggle is I didn't understand what sin was, but during my reading uh, I, I came into testimonies, And as I started reading testimonies, I saw that something happened that they would confess that they were a sinner and then they would invite Christ into their life and something changed. So what is his question of sin. And then I finally saw a definition of sin in an amplified Bible. It said sin is anything that does not conform to God's will in purpose in thought and in action. Yeah, the action's there. But what about my purpose in life and who was controlling my life? And if I was in the kingdom of God by going to church, if I was in the kingdom of God, why didn't I get up every morning and ask the God, ask the king what he wanted me to do? And if I wasn't doing that, who was controlling my life? Well, it didn't take me long to figure that out. Old King Self was on the throne. Mm. And for the first time in my life, I said, uh uh-uh. uh, I'm a sinner because I have a selfish nature. I was born with a greedy, selfish nature. And regardless of whether I ever commit, To that, greedy, selfish nature, commit an act, I'm still a sinner because for the first time, I saw that I wasn't in the kingdom. Wow. That was a major, major breakthrough. How old were you? Which brings me to the second point.
0: Well, how old were you then, Dr. (laughs) Neal?
1: I think it was in 33. And the second point was this person of Jesus Christ. See, I'd been doing enough reading now, and I knew that Jesus was a historical figure, and he worked the face of the earth some 2,000 years ago. He may have been the finest person that ever lived. He was a great teacher, the type of a person I could uh, I could relate to and, and form my life after his pattern. But what did he have to do with me in modern Miami? It just it didn't make sense. Academically, it just didn't make sense. But as I read these testimony after testimony after testimony, somehow when they invited Christ to come into the light, a change took place. And I mean, a major change took place. Now, sometimes people would backslide. I understand all that now. But, boy, this major change. I have about 150 books in my personal library of testimonies. I get get excited uh, uh, of somebody giving a testimony because it is a fact. Fact, 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 fact. And so one day driving to work down a busy straight interstate highway, I just looked up and I said, God, if my selfish grating nature makes me a sinner, I confess to being a sinner. Hmm. And other people have asked Christ to come into their life. And if there's a Jesus floating around out there in the sky someplace, I invite you to come into my life. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I didn't see, I didn't have any lightning strikes. I didn't hear the heavenly choir. I just puttered on down to work, got home that night. I'm still trying to prove that there's no God picked up my Bible and began to read it. And I said, Whoa. And I understood things that I didn't understand the night before. Wow. And Jesus made perfect sense. And then I found out in second Corinthians where I was. In 2 Corinthians, it says, but there is a veil over the eyes of the unbeliever that they cannot discern the truth. But when you turn in repentance, that veil is lifted. And my veil got lifted. But more important, I believe at that time, when I invited Christ to command my life, the great God of this universe planted a seed inside of me. I don't know where, but it's inside of me. And it's
0: that seed that that brings revelation. What a powerful story! You know, quite frankly, there's never been a testimony that I didn't enjoy. But the other part of it is every testimony is unique, and yours proves Absolutely. that point. Absolutely. Yeah. Because and you know the
1: great dry, he, tragedy in modern in modern well, America is that the bulk of the people never take time. To examine maybe the most serious question will ever be, are you a Christian? And is there a God? Mm-hmm. And if there is a God, how can you be related to him? Yeah. I I can't think of any question that is more important than that.
0: Dr. Neil Frank, it has been a pleasure. It has been so enjoyable picking your brains, talking about global warming talking about our nation and talking about our savior as well and i'm going to make sure that all portions of this interview are played accordingly so thanks for your time brother i really appreciate it well it's been a delight to be with you
1: and uh, speaking of testimony uh jesse was telling me about his
0: background here and i was excited to hear his background that is so great <laughs> well fantastic Uh, God bless you, my friend. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. And boy, your book is right on. Uh,
1: I hope that uh, some of these very strong uh, skeptics will begin to be sensitive to the truth that you're bringing out in your book. This is a Marxist move, and we've got to wake up to that.
0: Amen. What a great honor to interview Dr. Neil Frank. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. And thanks also to Jesse for helping out with Dr. Neil. Now, please do not forget to order a copy right now of my book, Climate Cult, Exposing and Defeating Their War on Life, Liberty, and Property. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening please make sure you subscribe. God bless you, and until next time, thanks for watching.